Good morning, and my apologies. Uh, I drove the caravan this morning, and uh, when we got to uh, the intersection of Northern Lights and uh, Lake Otis to turn left, there was a pretty nasty accident right there. So we're going to pray for those folks when we have our prayer this morning. So we sat there for a little while and uh, waiting to be redirected and then uh, finally got to make a U-turn. So here we are. I'm just not sure where my neck is. Maybe not. All right, let's pray. Father, you are full of grace and love and forgiveness for us. We're thankful, Father, for the opportunity you give us to repent and to change our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and our behavior and to come back to you. We seek to please you, Father. We seek to please you with our lives by following the example of Jesus, the example given to us through your word. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to strengthen our desire to know you through your word and to learn and know more about your son and his life and father this morning we pray your blessing upon our study not only here and now in this place but throughout the week when we are apart that we will continue to ask seek and knock to have a very strong desire to Study your word, Father. Thank you, Father, now for this time together and for this family and the love that we have for one another. And we pray your special blessing at this time upon the folks involved in that accident, Father, that that we had just seen, that uh, uh, we know that uh, uh, you are aware of all things, that uh, we don't need to fill you in on the details, but we do ask uh, that you'll watch over those folks and uh, be with the uh, emergency workers and the medical folks that uh, that are helping them uh, and that there will be a good outcome for them. So uh, bless us in our class this morning, Father, and uh, bless me that, uh, that I'll get the message across in a way that uh, is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I'm very glad that we are here together this morning. Uh, it is good for us to be here. And so, uh, picking up where we left off last week, or maybe in the middle of where we were last week, we're, we're still in Nahum, and, uh, it's my, my intention, at least anyway, to finish Nahum this morning, 
uh, and then maybe start talking about kind of do an intro to Habakkuk and talk about Habakkuk for uh, maybe the next couple of weeks. Uh, that that appeared. So when when I first started teaching this class, I made a list of the minor prophets and I counted the number of pages in my Bible and counted the number of pages given to them in the commentary that I was looking at, um, which frankly I haven't looked at much, but it's there for me, right? And to help me kind of calculate how much time I would need for each class, and I'm a little bit over, not much, not much. Uh, one of the brothers is going to teach for me on uh, one of the weekends later in July while I'm gone, and, and I'll task him with getting us caught up. So how, how's that sound? So <laughs> we'll do that. But, you know, so last week we were we started off talking about uh, uh, Jonah and, and Nineveh because, you know, you got to read about Nineveh and Jonah where uh, Jonah was sent to cry out to the great city of Nineveh, and they ended up repenting. Uh, they ended up, uh, the, the whole city, repenting together, and then at the end of Jonah there, it told us that God relented and, and did not destroy them. And then when you get to Nahum, uh, just, just a little more than 100 years later, uh, we were asking the question, what happened? What happened in the, the relatively short period of 100 years that caused these people to 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 go from being uh, being forgiven and being spared by God to now being back in the crosshairs for destruction, right? And so uh, that took us to Romans, and we we were examining Romans, and we'll finish that real quick because I have a very important point to make about what happened and what can happen, not only in the course of a period of a hundred years, but in one generation. Uh, and what is happening now throughout the church and throughout the world uh, in a very, very strong way. So in the first chapter of Romans, uh, beginning with verse 18, we're looking at God's wrath on unrighteousness. And to start off there in verse 18, and, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing again. This is going to be kind of a quick summary and then moving on, right? So there in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the wrath of God against what? All unrighteousness and all ungodliness of men. So that's the focus here in Romans chapter 1. And you jump down to verse 21, and it says, Because, right? So that's going to be important, and we'll come back to it. And you go down to verse 20. And it says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and then to these other wicked behaviors. Right. And then you jump down to verse 26 and it says, for this reason, God gave them up. So here you've got uh, examples in scripture from the beginning of these two paragraphs. So it's like the topic sentence of these paragraphs, uh, these paragraphs saying that God gave them up to the lust of these things and this behavior and homosexuality. Uh, and, and it goes into some detail there on that. And then in verse 28, it says, in the middle of that verse, it says, God gave them over to a debased mind to do these things which are not fitting. So God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over to a debased mind. And then, after kind of focusing on homosexuality for, for a couple of paragraphs there, he goes into some other sins. So... It, it's kind of like, just in case any of us are reading about homosexuality and we're not involved in that, we're not interested in that, it's like, hold on a minute. There are other things here that are also worthy of destruction. And then maybe when we look at this list, we see some things that we have done 
or maybe even something that we are doing, grouped in with these folks, these behaviors, right? And, and you know, that's one of the, the biggest lies against Christianity from, uh, from that perspective, from the perspective, the sinful perspective of the world is that those Christians hate homosexuals. They hate these sinners. No, no, we Christians don't hate the sinner. We hate the sin because God hates the sin. It's very important to keep that straight in your mind, right? Uh, we do not hate the sinner. We hate the sin because God abhors sin, right? And it's all about either walking in darkness or walking in the light. And we'll talk about that later. But you know, in that list that we looked at there that came after he, he gave them up to a debased mind, in verse 29 and following, it said some things, and we stopped for a moment. We talked about the inventors of evil and that there's a whole lot of that going on right now, you know. Uh, and I'm not going to go into, to, because you'll get distracted. You'll stop thinking about what we're talking about here because, man, there's really some things going on that can distract you right now. But it said that uh, disobedient to parents undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And you know, up, up above there, it also talked about uh, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Murder! It said murder. Did you see that? So being lumped in with murder, we find evil-mindedness. What do you think about? Do you take every thought captive for Christ, like the Bible tells us to? If you find your mind straying in something you ought not to be thinking about, take that thought captive immediately. Stop whatever you're doing. Pray right then. Don't wait. Take that thought captive and pray. Your inclination to sin will begin to decrease. It really works. It really does. Backbiters, whisperers, backbiting, whispering. You know, you combine that backbiting and whispering with unforgiving and unmerciful. Um, you know, uh, I've been here for 30 years. My family was moved here by the Air Force in 1991, right? Oh, which reminds me, a few days ago I ran into Kevin Garrity's brother. I'll tell you about that, right? Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I've been here 30 years. And one of the things that I might take upon myself as a duty is that when new guys get here, like say, I've been here 30 years, maybe you've only been here two or three years, let me fill you in, right? Let me tell you about that guy over there and what he did 10 years ago. And that lady over there, what she did 25 years ago, right? Come to my house for a barbecue, I'll make you comfortable, and then I'm going to whisper some things. I'm going to do some backbiting because we need to fill you in. You need to know the history of the things that people have repented for and been forgiven of, right? So sometimes that's how that works. Um, I, I really, one of the things that I admire most about Mike Sherrill when he got here was he made it very clear, right? Made it very clear that he didn't need anyone coming to him, filling him in on the dirt. And and that I found that to be a very admirable thing. So, um so in Romans 1, we're looking at all these sins, all this wickedness, all these problems that in verse 18 said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So that was kind of like the uh, the thesis statement, if you will, the objective statement for this the passage uh, that follows all the way to the end of chapter 1. And so we find a very, very important word 
in verse 21 that answers the big question, why? What happened? Because when we were back there looking at, uh, we looked at Jonah and what happened with Nineveh and how they were spared. And then about 100 years later, they found themselves in trouble again. And they were being destroyed by the enemy. Uh, then, well, by the enemy that was, you know, commissioned by God. Um, and so we asked the question, what happened? What went wrong? Well, so in relating this to modern times, look at verse 21 where it says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. So I'm going to stop right there for a second. That explains the problem for this whole passage. That explains the problems that we're looking at in society today. That, that explains Christians falling away. That explains uh, so many problems that, that we're having to deal with. In verse 21 it says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. So what they're talking about here is worship. It is the neglect, the neglect of acceptable worship. And it is the abandonment of acceptable worship that pleases God. And that's the whole problem. That's how all of this that we're reading about in the first chapter of Romans started and began. And that's why I'm so thankful uh, of the work that Tony does in talking about God and the importance of his children acting like his children and loving him and knowing him and, more importantly, worshiping him acceptably and you notice i keep saying the word acceptable and acceptably every time i say worship it's because all over the place people are engaged in unacceptable and unauthorized worship of god which is not pleasing to him my cotton mouth it's water i only have water in the auditorium <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so think on that when you read and study the first chapter of Romans and when you read any part of the Bible and you find these lists that, that are here and there uh, throughout the Bible about the sins that occur uh, go back to Romans 1 and look here at verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Um, and and uh, I happened upon this. Uh, worship is active, something we do. We are to honor God in all that we do, but God has also given us instructions as to what he desires from us in worship. Worship should be a great... I'm reading the back, the little thing on the back that tells you about the, what this book is about. Worship should be a great source of unity among Christians, but has become a basis of division. Churches are being torn apart by those who have shifted the focus of worship from pleasing God to pleasing men. Worship is not to be evaluated in terms of how it makes people feel. And though... Although true worship stirs our emotions, worship is much more than a feeling. 
Both our attitudes and our actions must be in sync with God's will. And where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well where he says time is coming when the, the worship in spirit and in truth is talking about those things there. So um, just something to think about. And that's being preached on and taught, so we don't need to go off into that uh, very deeply, but, uh, but study it on your own in addition to listening to the lessons. You know, uh, back in, uh, in Nahum, uh, in the first first few verses of, of chapter 1 there where we were, uh, I'd started to talk about the awesomeness of God and told you that when we resumed this morning, we would uh, continue talking about the awesomeness of God. Uh, but then I heard the lessons that Tony preached on Sunday evening uh, and uh, the, the lessons that he's been preaching recently and then, uh, uh, and then on Wednesday night, and I decided I'm, I'm not going to talk about the awesomeness of God. Uh, we've got that down. So if you happen to have missed those, we got the recordings on the uh, Skype. On the, if you go to the church website and you pick on uh, click watch and then archives, then these lessons are recorded in there. And go back and listen to Tony's lessons of late uh, and, and all of them that you've missed. And then when you finish with that, turn off your TV and go start at the beginning back in March of... Uh, uh, Bob's lessons on Peter and uh, make sure you, you listen to all those at least twice and so we're, we're looking at uh, the book of Nahum uh, some people call it Nahum but uh, Nahum so we're looking at the book of Nahum and, and uh, in, when we were closing last week we had said that uh, in chapter 1 uh, verses 12, 13 and 15 were uh, addressed to Judah right because you think about what's going on here, the Assyrians who had uh, been oppressing these people for such a long time and had already uh, conquered Samaria and taken captive the northern kingdom and were threatening Judah constantly, uh, Judah living in uh, uh, subservient to them. And so those were the oppressors. And so Nahum is about uh, God's wrath against these Assyrians represented here by Nineveh, which they had made their capital, right? And so in these, those three verses were addressed to Judah, and they're comforting. Thus says the Lord in verse 12, Though they are safe, and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I will afflict you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. And down in 15 it says, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows. For the wicked one shall... No more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And you know, I, I looked at the verse preceding 15 there in verse uh, 14, uh, which is a part that's not addressed to Judah. And it says, The Lord has given a command concerning you, being Nineveh. So here he's talking to the city of Nineveh. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. So remember uh, before when we were talking about Jacob and Esau, uh, Edom, where we looked at where they were, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm having trouble with words. Uh, idolaters. They were, it was idolatry. And so you got a whole lot of that going on here in Nineveh. Uh, now, a little more than 100 years after he had spared them. And he says, I will listen to this. 
Think about what it must be like to be on the receiving end of this message from God. I will dig your grave for you are vile. You know, if you ever find yourself caught up in sin, maybe walking in darkness and you're having trouble repenting, remember things like this. And remember Romans eleven twenty two, where he said to know the goodness and the severity of God. Right? I will dig your grave for you are vile. God is truth and he is immutable. He will not change. So yeah, we're New Testament Christians. We're reading the Old Testament. God does not change. So in chapter 2, we get into the destruction of Nineveh. And uh, uh, so one of the things I had read, it talked about the poetry of this, because this is written in a format of poetry, and that uh, for a person who understood the language and, and, the, uh, uh, and, and poetry, <laughs> I'm not even the guy who understands poetry. I like poetry, I like reading it, but I can't break it down for you into whatever they call it, pentameter, or I don't know. Uh, but but they say that if you're a person who has studied and understands poetry and you know this language, that this is all very beautiful to read. And it's hard to imagine when you listen to how destructive chapter 2 is because it's talking about the destruction of Nineveh. He who scatters has come up before your face. And then there's some, there's some cynical commands here that follow. He says, man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your mighty, your power mightily. These are cynical commands. It's kind of like, uh, to me, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I got a bunch of grandkids. Uh, we've got 10 of those now. And so uh, when they reach that age where they learn to run, they kind of learn to run before they learn to walk. You ever see that? And they take off running when they're not supposed to from their parents, and the parent goes after them, right? I can't go after them. I would not catch them probably, but the parents go after them. And it's... In the military, we called it imminent. It is imminent for them that the parent is going to catch them. It is futile for them to run. I have never seen a parent not catch them. Uh, it's amazing an obstacle course a parent can get through when they're trying to catch a toddler, right? Uh, but that's what these, these cynical commands... And I, lo- I love to tell the grandkids when they take off running, I'm like, run, run! Yeah, and they do. They speed up a little, and the parents are like, thanks, Dad, you know? Um and and it irritates Melissa, but we're in when we're in a grocery store like a Fred Meyer somewhere, and that that door alarm goes off. Like, why don't they just get rid of that, right? So that door alarm constantly going off to the point that nobody nobody pays attention. But if I'm checking out, I'm at the grocery stand, and the door alarm goes off because somebody tried to walk through, then I yell, "Run!" <laughs> and that irritates my wife, so I try to control myself. And everybody just kind of looks at me like, "What?" So, so in chapter two here. Um, look at all the wasted effort like a two-year-old trying to run from a parent the shields of his mighty men are made red in verse three the valiant men are in scarlet the chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation you know the chariots had uh, blades sticking out of the wheels so that as they they pass they could just wipe out and kill uh, cut people off its legs And the spears are brandished, the chariots rage in the streets, they jostle one another in the broad roads, they seem like torches, they run like lightning, he remembers his nobles, they stumble in their walk, they they make haste to her walls, and now I'm thinking about the Alamo, right? Uh, 
they made haste to the walls to defend that fort. And the defense is prepared. It's all set. Right there at the end of verse 5. It's all set. The forces are ready. Military might. They're ready for an impressive parade of military might and power. And then, boom. Verse 6. Check this out. Look how fast things change when God is the one that you're in trouble with. Verse 6. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. Boom. That's all it took. Like a flood. Probably more accurately like a tsunami. And with modern technology, we've been able to see the terrifying devastation of a tsunami. But I was trying to think of what that must have been like for them to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. It's got to be even worse than a tsunami. Um, you know, remember what happened to Mount St. Helens, those of you who are old enough? Uh, so there's a, kind of a big, steep mountain. And when the volcano erupted, matter of fact, it's what probably triggered the eruption, was uh, half of the mountain over here on this one side just like became a, a half a mountain worth of mudslide but with lava, right? And imagine being in the path of that destruction, maybe at the foot of that mountain looking up, right? That quick. This is why it's difficult for me to, when I read that the poetry was beautiful, I'm like, how can this be beautiful no matter what the King James does with it or what the poet does with it? So you think of, uh, in verse 8, it says, The Nineveh of old was like a pool of water. And you know, when I go back up to verse 5, it says, They make haste to her walls. Uh, Nineveh was a famed city. When you read about it, they had walls that were 100 feet high. Uh, they were wide enough for four chariots to travel atop the walls. Uh, had a circumference circumference of 80 miles. Remember back in Jonah, it said it took... Uh, Back in uh, Jonah, it said it took him three days to walk across it, crying out against the city. That's a long walk. The moat was 140 feet wide and 60 feet deep. Impenetrable. Impenetrable. At their time, at that time. They didn't have air power. Right? Uh, and then I keep going back. To verse 6 where it says the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved that quick. And now in verse 10 it says she is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side and all their faces are drained of color. Remember how you felt when that big earthquake hit us? Yeah? Uh, and, and so a quick funny story, it had only been, I think, two or three weeks before that big earthquake that somebody at work, I worked in the A Tower at Providence in uh, Latouche Pediatrics uh, on the fourth floor, and only two or three weeks before that big earthquake, someone had told me, just in, you know, casual conversation with coworkers, that uh, the A Tower was the oldest tower at the, in Providence and was the only one not earthquake-proof, the only one not on rollers or however they do it. So I had that in my head, right? Had that in my head. And so I'm on the fourth floor of the A-Towers, like 8-whatever in the morning, and I'm at Nurse Station 3 getting things ready to give a bunch of kids uh, their shots, right? And then that thing hit. And I've, I've got a, a a thing. It's just it's it's uh, called Prince Metal Angina, where it's chest pain for no reason, basically. 
right? And I've had that for a long time, uh, diagnosed back in 94. And, uh, uh, you know, in later years, it's become triggered by stress. Uh, and the earthquake proved that for me finally. I stopped arguing with my wife that it was triggered by stress, I think, because that earthquake hit, and man, that that, that A-tower, the fourth floor, was going crazy, and I, I got under the counter, and things are falling, flying, cabinets are open, chairs are falling over, and I'm like, oh, this is a bad one. And then I thought, why am I getting under the counter? My chest hurts so bad, I'll be dead in a minute anyway. I'm not going to participate in a building collapse, Right. Uh, but I survived it. The building survived it. I found out later that uh, uh, that was bad information. The A-Tower is on rockers. Uh, it is earthquake-proof, obviously, right? Still there. Uh, but, you know, verse 10, she is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts. The knees shake. Much pain is in every side. And all their faces are drained of color. That was me during and after that earthquake, Right? And so think about what that felt like for you and then multiply that by exponentially is uh, what it must feel like to be on the receiving end of God's wrath, knowing that Hebrews 9.27 is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment, and every knee will be on the ground. Not one knee, both knees. So now where is the dwelling of the lions? The lions being their warriors in this case. And the feeding place of the young lions where the lions walked past tents. The lioness and lion's cub. The devastation was complete and thorough. Every corner swept clean because they had come up in opposition to God. And so you look at verse 13. And we're going to compare that to down to verse Chapter 3 and verse 5, verse 13 there in chapter 2 says, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. And then chapter 3, verse 5 again, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. Backing up to the end of chapter 2 that covered the destruction of Nineveh, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions, your warriors. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. Put an end to you. And then you back up where we're in chapter 1, where he said, I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Down in chapter 3, we get into the woe of Nineveh. That's a little subheading put there in my Bible. The woe of Nineveh. It's over. The destruction is complete. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victims never, never depart. A victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. So it's a, it was a, vi- a very busy and fast paced city, especially in the preparation for their destruction to go up against their enemy. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain. A great number of bodies. Countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. When you consider the the behavior of the Assyrians preceding their destruction. uh, How they were uh, uh, conquering these cities and and they were very cruel uh and and uh, the stories 
preceded them and came ahead of them of their cruelty where they would take the the leader of these cities and these nations that they conquered and do very grotesque and and gruesome things to them uh, in front of the inhabitants of that city and then piling bodies and going through and killing everyone. And, and there are even accounts, uh, I'd read some things that said that you couldn't even walk in the streets. There were so many bodies. Uh, there were bodies everywhere. And the, and the, the people, the, the, the soldiers, the conquering soldiers were up to their knees in blood. Uh, the, the streets and cer- certain areas were so full of the blood of the corpses. So it was very gruesome and grotesque uh, what they had done. And then now this is their experience, the description of them after the destruction. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries. Uh, and, and, you know, to understand this part here where it talks about the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, which is probably their chief goddess at the time, the Assyrians, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Uh, let's take a quick look at Deuteronomy 18 and verse 9 through 13 there. Don't want to just skip over this. Where In Deuteronomy 18 uh, and... Uh, I'll start with verse 10 and read to 13 where it says, uh, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or one who practices. And passing through the fire, uh, Mike Sherrill preached on that uh, pretty extensively. Uh, or one who practices witchcraft or soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. This is, this is why I won't even read this horoscope stuff they put in the newspapers, right? Nope, don't want anything to do with that. Uh, when I was younger, a kid, I would, I would read it, and sometimes it was funny, and you could joke about, hey, you know, whatever, but no. Uh, steer completely clear of that stuff. Don't want anything to do with it. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you, you shall be blameless. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Kind of makes you think about uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where uh, Matthew five forty eight, where it says, uh, Be ye perfect as God is perfect. Matthew five forty eight. Be perfect as God is perfect. And it's like, whoa, what? No, can't do that. But then we look at uh, what, what some consider to be a parallel passage in Luke six thirty six, where it says, Be merciful as God is merciful. And then in Romans 1, when we have that list of sins, some one of the things that are grouped up in there with murder and homosexuality and all the things that we consider to be just really horrible is being unmerciful. <laughs> Not being merciful. All right? If, if you do something wrong and you repent, and then I'm still giving you attitude, then you know that I am being unmerciful. And the tables have kind of turned. Now I'm the one who needs to repent, right? Something to think about. Uh, thank you for all the good lessons on forgiveness um, as we examine ourselves. So down in uh, chapter 3 and verse 5, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will... Now, this is just terrible. 
I don't even like reading this, but it's in here. So we, we have to look at it, right? Like some of that stuff in Romans 1. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. Uh, that's my understanding that back then these Assyrian warriors were, and they're depicted in a lot of the, uh, uh, I don't know, you know pictographs of uh, wearing these skirts. You know, like uh, like Yul Brenner in the Ten Commandments in the uh, movie with Charlton Heston. He got the long skirt on. Uh, I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile. Well, chapter 1, verse 14 already told us that they're already vile. So vile heaped upon vile. I will make you vile and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Which is interesting because Nahum means comforter. The name Nahum uh, translated means comforter. But he's comforting comforting Judah right now, like we read in chapter 1. So uh, what does that mean? Just like five minutes? Five minutes? Okay. So we'll, we'll wrap up Nahum uh, and, then, uh, and then start on Habakkuk next week. So I wanna, uh, I'll just jump down to the last verse in chapter 3 of Nahum. Because chapter 3 is about the woe of Nahum. Make sure that you read that again because I know you read it before class, right? But look at verse 19, the last verse. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear all who hear news of you will clap their hands over you, which uh, uh, many times in scriptures the this clapping of hands was a very spiteful and nasty thing to do. Somebody clapping your hands at them. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? And I like how he ends the book of Nahum with a question with a question for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually um, Nahum is a book uh, is a short book and so I think that it should be deliberately taught the same way briefly so we've uh, been in Nahum for uh, better part of two weeks now I think because if you if you stretch it out then you diminish the shock of it. And that's what we're going for here. That's what, that's what God was going for because there's some terrifying language. And remember, when we, when we introduced the minor prophets, we talked about how there, was, there were rewards for pleasing and acceptable behavior in the sight of God, and there is punishment for disobedience. It's no different for us today. No different for us today. In a, uh, uh, much of the denominational world uh, and uh, uh, what some refer to erroneously as Christendom have a very, uh, a very laissez-faire attitude towards sin. God does not. God does not, nor shall we. That's why you, you study the concept of walking in the light. Walking in the light. Being a Christian is a constant cycle 
of godly sorrow and repentance and prayer and walking in the light. And it's just like anything else you set your, your heart to. If you want to play the piano when you first start out, maybe you're not very good. You're horrible. But if the people in your house can tolerate listening to you and letting that continue, eventually you get better because you practice. You practice and you become better and better. And the next thing you know, you're a virtuoso. I think they call it. Right? Christianity is the same way. It's not unlike anything else. You practice your Christianity. Remember Hebrews 5 where he said, uh, talking about uh, the very oracles of God and how we put them to use. We apply. That's about application. Remember we talked about and study this. Uh, go look at Boom's cognitive taxonomy, the hierarchy of learning. You start out with a base of knowledge, and then you move to comprehension, and then you start to apply those things, right? And then there are three higher levels above that, according to Bloom. Uh, analysis, synthesis, synthesis where these things have just become so much a part of you. You play on the piano, you just put away the sheet music because your fingers are trained, and it's beautiful, Right? Christianity works the same way. You practice your Christianity. When you find yourself in sin, when you find yourself tempted, remember God doesn't tempt anyone. We read from James. But when you find yourself being tempted, um, go to 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, the one that I misquoted when I said that God will not tempt you above what you're able. God will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but will always provide a way to escape. When you find yourself involved in sin or even being enticed or tempted by sin, stop and pray. Stop and pray. The way forward will be walking in light. So two lessons from Nahum. Because of his awesome character, we are to take God seriously. After Jonah preached in Nineveh, they went back to their old ways like a dog returning to the vomit. And secondly, because of God's almighty power, we are to fear God reverently. Fear Him with reverence. And thank you for your attention. And uh, continue to remember those folks in that accident we saw this morning.